Welcome to Crappy Traders. You're back for everything that's going on in Wall Street. Jimmy is still at around 190 in the post market. Why is that? What the hell is going on there? Going on from last time, we're going to be covering the second House Financial Committee meeting right here on proposed regulations such as imposing a tax on trades, limiting shorting, etc., etc. We'll be getting into the talk about accredited investors, and then finally we'll end off talking about the block trades that we've been seeing rocking the market over the last week. What is up there? Honestly, it's been incredibly fun watching everything that's been going on. The block trades have gone massive ways throughout the market. That was absolutely amazing to watch, especially when people didn't really know what, exactly what was going on. If any of you had access to what was going on in the black pools, that was also absolutely in incredible to watch. And credit to investors, the changes there are an amazing opportunity we can see. So that's very exciting. But let's start off with GME and kind of jump into that with Rocco explaining what's going on. All right, right now, basically, everyone, of course, is up to speed and knows what happened. GameStop in the massive short squeeze that we saw like two months ago by now. Is that, is that right? A month and a half I ago? I think, yeah, it's been a while. It's been a really long time already. But what is really surprising is that for a stock which you'd expect to be hovering around 30, 40, or 50 bucks after a crisis like that dissipates, it's actually back at around 190 or 200 or something like that, right? So like yesterday when we checked, about 190. And the question is, why is that still going on? Now, basically, what we can't see is that there's still a lot of a retail interest in the stock, right? And at the same time, that's been paired with the fact that GameStop has been making some moves in the right direction. So like Allison can tell us a little bit about what it's been doing in the tabletop side of their offer. Yeah, so when, when all of us, you know, when we, were, when we were watching what was actually going on with GME, there was a lot of talks about, all right, what's the new direction? Because as you probably know, there's been a new CEO coming to GME who's looking to kind of change the direction and make sure they have a direction to go. So there's been a lot of talk about moving more towards the online sector, now, I'm not sure how confident I would be in that because, of course, there's Amazon and other competitors who have far better control of the market with a lot of consoles just going without even discs. So the online distribution side of that, I'm not sure how well that would work. But there's been also quite a bit of talk around going for tabletop games. Now, I think that would definitely there be a lot of interest for that because you see a lot of these, you know, tabletop game shops kind of popping up around the place. And if GameStop really tried to focus in on that, did a lot of like small local tournaments and stuff like that, it could definitely bring a lot of excitement into the sector, especially if you've been watching what was going on with prices of different cards, like different card games. Rocco, you probably know that better than me. First off, Magic the Gathering, right? If I if GameStop started hosting like Friday Night Magic or something, I hosted Zoom sessions like that, I would 100% be in to like just freaking spend half of my Friday evenings there. Uh, yeah, like so we're talking about Magic the Gathering, Warhammer, things like that, right? The sort of classic... Oh, D&D, &D, yeah. of course. And right. another thing, like there's, there's been a massive you know, uptrend in the pricing of uh, you know, sports cards. Now, mm. I'm not sure if you can play any games with sports cards. I'm not familiar with that area of the market. But still, like there's, if there's interest there, there's going to be buyers there. And if they do some kind of a rating system, set up some kind of a better marketplace instead of just going with eBay, it could be very interesting. I think the amazing, amazing thing, right, that GameStop is still hovering at this higher price compared to what analysts and like the sort of establishment would value the company at. Just continues to give sort of proof to the fact that retail investors are a force to be reckoned with, right? They're not just a group that can cause one single surge, right? They just taper off and get completely deconstructed by like these opposing forces. No, they're, some, they're a group of traders who can totally keep a stock high in the sky, right? Yeah, like I have to say, it's, it's kind of shocking to me that it's still at 190 because after, you know, the whole boom and everything that happened, I kind of moved away from trading, uh, you know, GameStop because there was too much implied volatility for my trading strategies. And I haven't really been watching it. And I just came back to saying, oh, God, it's slot 190. It's very interesting. There's just the shock for me is kind of like people are still holding it. When I, you know, when I saw like, all right, it's spiked, it's going to go that a lot of the market's going to leave. Well, they're not like a lot of retail is still staying holding GameStop. And it, 
you know, we can see for some of them it's done pretty well. For some of the ones that bought towards the top, that's hurt. But nevertheless, it's it's very interesting that people are still holding on to GameStop so long after going out to the moon for GameStop happened. A friend of mine who like came to my door and said, hey, do you want to buy one-tenth of a GameStop share with me? Like, we bought around, like, 2.30. And so, like, if, if you're someone who is, who is actually going long on a stock, right, not just loading up on coals and things like that, well, you, you ironically, you're still actually... You're down like ten percent, twenty percent, or something like that. Yeah, but I mean, you're not you're not actually doing that bad compared to. The and also, like, what's everything. important to say here? It's like, yeah, you might be down ten, twenty percent, but the implied volatility was still decently high. If you farmed a bit of premium on your through options and just sold yeah. covered calls, you could have done well, like you know well enough. You could have been completely fine at this point. And that's just actually crazy. talking about that since you mentioned you guys are holding some uh, fun <laughs> positions at two thirty. Did you guys do a bit of farming to get farm some of that premium? Man, like this is not something that I was controlling. It was just like a, f- a friend of mine who lives in my flat, right, getting into trading for the first time. Like the first stock she bought was a share of GameStop, like uh, was a fifth of a share of GameStop, right? And I, I'm not even sure if on this platform, like you can do that sort of like funky stuff with the options, right? Funky stuff, I call, but it's like the, the stuff, you, the most basic sort of options that you can do. <laughs> and I, unfortunately, this just goes to the point right there that there isn't really that much education out there. Right, it's like what you can do when you're holding something like this, right? That you don't yeah. have to just hold, right? That you can actually do some of these sort of things that allow you to claw back. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. I just want to say one thing because, you know, I was recently, uh, recently someone sent me something on YouTube uh, where it was like, oh, breakdown of billions, why their option strategy wasn't true. It was very interesting to watch because you have these people who are, you know, semi-experts in the industry and then they don't even know half the option strategies you could use to enter the market at a lower cost price. So it's honestly very interesting to me to watch how, you know, options, which to me are something I, you know, deal with quite a bit because I like to use options to mitigate risk, you know, lower my basis prices, stuff like that. And then you have people who are, you know, semi-experts. And then when they talk about just how, how to use something or how to deal with options in a certain way, they don't even, you know, know a lot of the, what I would call basics. So it's really shocking to me how segregated the knowledge within the financial industry is. Absolutely. But now let's just get into a little bit about the actual, like the sort of regulatory uh, hearings that GameStop spawned, that this entire crisis spawned. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the second uh, house hearing. Oh, God. Okay. I just want to hit it off with one thing that I would hate to see on the market because that's going to dry up volume massively. (laughs) Imposing a tax on trades. So for every trade, you would pay a little bit of a tax, half a percent, 0.05 of a percent, just a tiny bit of money. Every time you execute a trade, you would pay a tax. What do you think, Rockham? Okay, look, we've already been arguing a lot about the role of these, of these sort of regulations in Britain, what role uh, these regulations had in like driving away uh, bankers and traders to the mainland, right? Personally, right, look... Part of me just wants to take up the opposition, opposite position, right? Because this is the sort of, sort of Keynesian heritage I have, right? From my like from my study of economics, right? He was a big, big fan on like attacking the sort of uh, attacking the sort of speculative investor, right? And by like, going after uh, excessive volatility with these sort of taxes on trades. Personally, right? I, I'm I'm partial. I, I am open to the sort of arguments that like we don't want to endanger uh, New York's financial supremacy. Look, right? look. I, I just want to say kind of one thing half the hearings we're talking about insufficient volume happening on exchanges if you put a tax on trades that happen on exchanges you're worsening the problem you're trying to solve well look again as i was saying like earlier on uh with you 
you can just force all the volume to be on the exchange, right? And then tax it all, right? This is It's not as if we're some innocent bystander and we have an either or facing us, right? We're talking about the power of the regulator. Right, but here. like there, there's, there's plenty of lobbyists from Wall Street lobbying, uh, you know, the Senate and all of them. So if I doubt that that would actually pass through okay. all at once as one package. You have to you have to be realistic also on what would pass. Yeah, if they pass the tax, they're not going to force all volume to be on exchange. So either way, what it's what that's going to do is it's going to hurt the retail investor. Look, look. Of course, if the if a pragmatic sort of assessment of the situation is that well, those people with like huge uh, like with a huge budget for lawyers and lobbyists, if they can get away get around the regulation that would be proposed and all end up hurting would be these sort of new retail, retail investors, investors etc. Well, of course, uh, I'd be, I'd be like, uh, I'd, I'd understand that, right? But the point is here, we're talking about the sort of, uh, like, uh, we're looking for an ideal to aim at, right? And that is like, that's... that's And it's a horrible about. ideal to aim at either way. Because think about it like this, like, if what are you going to do? Are you going to start enforcing taxes on, let's say, some someone in Germany sells a stock to someone else in Germany? Are you suddenly going to start taxing them as the U.S. government? Like, are you going to completely restrict private sales of uh, stocks? Are you like, because if, if you don't, then all the, you know, all the massive amounts of volume are going to move away from the U.S. and people are going to trade U.S. stocks from abroad because it turns out cheaper. So how would you like even implement these taxes? I just don't see a functional way of having these in place without only really hurting retail investors. So just to sum up, you know, the imposed tax trades, like there's definitely some people interested in it that are saying, oh, it would raise a ton of money, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a lot of issues around it. You know, how would it affect the volume? What would happen to the U.S. markets as opposed to the alternatives? And there's just a lot of questions there. And honestly, I can say the two of us absolutely do not have like a clear answer uh, to conclude with here. So let's move on to the next piece of regulations, which is limiting shorting. Now, what do you think about that? Now, that I'm completely against, right? Because whether you're, especially since what we're doing as part of ETHO, right, with sort of trying to really empower folks who want to trade ethically. Short is a fundamentally, it's going to be a fundamental part of any such toolkit for the ethical investor. People go after short sellers, right? Because it's really easy to see people who do well shorting when a market is doing badly, right? So like a few high profile cases, it's really easy to sort of influence the discourse such that people have a bad view of short sellers. But like this is just so, it's really unfair, right? The sort of uh, opinion a lot of people have about these guys, right? Because short sellers do such valuable work in sort of really pressure testing the market's assumptions about these companies, right? Helping regulators out. By yeah, really and also like, you have, like one thing I see with a lot of, you know, shorting and all that, it's about managing risk. Like shorting is an integral part of how many uh, both institutions and retail investors hedge their risk, which actually creates more balance in the market, makes a more stable market. And if you're not allow, you know, if you're not going to allow shorting, the force when something horrible happens, people are just going to be trying to run away from the market. It's going to cause a panic. There's going to be a ton of different moves around this, the side of it. And from everything I can kind of see, like wild scale restrictions on shorting would probably destabilize the market more than they would help it. Absolutely. Like shorting is an integral part of any sort of risk management strategy, right? But I'd really like to just focus in on the sort of work that short sellers actually do, that the people who are usually engaged in shorting do, right? Because what these people do is that they have to really focus in on a company's fundamentals, really sort of fact check, like go deep into this, like the assumptions and reports that these companies are putting out, right? And oftentimes they put in a, so much extra work in sort of uncovering the sort of uh, malfeasance that you can discover on these companies' parts. It's just such an important part, doing such an important work for the markets. Yeah, so let's both agree there. Uh, let's, you know, move on. So 
as as we talked about last time, the shortening of settlement times was talked about again quite a bit during the second house meeting. Yeah, uh, I don't think we need to get into that again. So then the kind of big discussion there was regulating payment for order flow more and adjusting the formulas for what's price improvement. And additionally, of course, just going all the way and just forcing volume to be on exchange. It should get rid of dark pools and all that. Uh, you know, personally, I think I, like, I'm kind of split on this. On one hand, I think it's some, it's something that does a lot of good for retail investors where they can actually, you know, trade cheaper. And if they're investing and it's long term, then the marginal losses in price improvement aren't really that significant but if we look at it from the other side it's it's true like if you had far more volume on exchange you would get better prices period so i i I don't know honestly i don't know if what i would do there's there's arguments on both sides but i definitely love to see more volume on exchange if it wouldn't harm retail investors if there was some kind of a middle way of solution where it could be done without hurting retail investors that would make me really happy and unfortunately i can't even disagree here but i'm similarly sort of split on the issue because yeah actually hold on i've got i just got an idea what if you force all volume on exchange you then impose a tax on trade like a marginal tax and then you make all that trading completely free so you don't like exchanges are funded by the actually that sounds horrible funding exchange okay you know what no that was a stupid (laughs) idea no 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 that wouldn't work (laughs) all right now that i've made that horrible blunder let's move on to accredited investors (laughs) Yeah, so like, I really am sort of like hyped about this because the, an issue that they identified in the hearings, right, is that right now a lot of the sort of to become an accredited investor, it's it depends on how much capital you have, right? And just because you have a lot of capital doesn't necessarily mean that you actually have the education that you really need to go along with that, sort of in, to invest in trade and trade money sensibly. Just additionally, like it, it restri- again, it restricts retail investors from investing into businesses. Like look at the UK, like Deliveroo is doing its you know IPO and they're letting normal people invest into their company before like to buy at pre-IPO prices. That's something that's you know going to bring opportunities to a lot of people. And if far more companies did it like they do it here in the UK, that would definitely bring a lot of retail investors great opportunities. So that's one thing that's kind of I see as important with the accredited investor side is that it gives retail you know it gives retail access to those pre-IPO pre-public listing market side of it and it's not just restricted to the decently wealthy because uh, actually what's the limit for a credit investor as far as the capital i'm not quite sure from the top of my head but i just see rocco looking up right now so i'm, I'm going to keep talking about uh, the other side but like there, there was a talk about just uh, instead of having it be a capital requirement it would be an exam requirement so as long as you can pass an exam you can do it that will kind of be similar to the way municipal bonds work where there's an exam you have to pass to actually just trade municipal bonds and it's not directly tied to capital in such a way that accredited investors are so, Rocco? Yeah, and absolutely. And I definitely, thanks for reminding me about that because I definitely want to get that exam or do that exam. That'll be so fun. <laughs> Stealing my ideas, yep. like always. So, how much capital is it? 100%. But, like, uh, you need a net worth of at least a million bucks, right? Or to have an income of at least 200K a year for the last two years and have that same expectation uh, for the. Yeah, like, that's, the, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like, if you think about yeah, it, look, that, that, ties, that cuts out what? It's 80% of the US market, 90%? Like, how many. That's excluding it's the value. Amount. That's excluding the value of your primary residence as well. So that's gonna. Oh, that's gonna like really. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's gonna be yeah. really bad. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, like this really shouldn't be. Uh, you know, it really shouldn't work that way. Like two hundred k to invest into a startup if you have that money and you know what you're doing, that can, you know, make massive amounts of money. Like there's angel investments which are like twenty thousand dollars and you get a decent amount of equity for that. So absolutely, I think that should open up to more people and it should be exam-based. 
So I think we're in agreement here. Like, right? right. They should just change it, make it exams, screw the capital requirements. Look, you, like you can enforce some basics, like really, really low capital requirement, right? So like maybe having income, say, above uh, 50K, and say, well, net wealth of above. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. tie to net wealth. Look, honestly, I wouldn't tie to net wealth because if someone's just living off their money and is uh, just generally, I wouldn't tie it to money. I would just tie it to the knowledge because if you have the yeah, knowledge, if you can pass the exam, then you sh- you know well enough how to manage your risk. You know what you're doing. It's just like in, you know when you trade on the market. If you understand your risk profile, it doesn't matter if you're trading with three hundred dollars or a million dollars. Yes, it changes a bit of about your entry strategies, but nevertheless. Yeah, and exactly like proof of what you're saying now is turning to Bill Huang, right? Which is proof that just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean that you know what you're doing. Hey, hey right. let's let's, <laughs> let's relax here. He was able to get like ten times margin on his money. Ten to that he clearly knew what he was doing. One hundred percent. Same goes, of course, for all the banks that were freaking bankrolling this, right? So basically, folks, we saw some massive block trades rolling, rolling the markets, right? And if you were there at market open on Monday, that would have been crazy if you held any from Baidu to Discovery, right? So basically, we have this chap called Bill Huang. Uh, he worked at a hedge fund, got dinged for insider trading back in like 2012, I think. And uh, basically got shut off of like managing other people's money. That didn't stop the guy. So he came back, started a family office called Archegos, right? Archegos? Archegos? I have no idea. But like, so he slowly got right back into this. And despite the fact that he was on a blacklist of most of these big banks, as he started making more and more bets, right? Becoming more and more lucrative, in terms of like fees, these big uh, bulge brackets, one by one, sort of uh, started uh, open October. With, exactly, yeah. And as a result, a few flash forward a few years, we now have a god tier margin call, right? And it was just amazing. Well, right? I think I think if if the guy wants to just make some of his money back, he should just post his losses on Wall Street Bets. Oh I'm sure god. people <laughs> would rain in uh, all those awards, and he can make that you know make a little bit of money back from those awards. <laughs> <laughs> Because those uh, like getting getting a what was it fifty billion dollar margin call or ten billion or so how like, much was it? So for twenty billion dollars of like what's estimated to be a fifty billion dollar so uh, total getting a twenty billion like dollar margin call. Now that's now that's real like <laughs> just diamond hands just going at yeah. it. You don't care what's going on. But I just imagine his face being like plastered right on the poster. With like, Look, uh, if, if he if he was trading through Robinhood, <laughs> that would have made it perfect. Like that guy deserves to be, you know, a Wall Street bets admin just plastered everywhere. Yeah. So it's, it's it's sad to see he wasn't. Yeah, but like, so what <laughs> happened, right? Is that over the week then? Like at first, no one had any idea what the hell was happening. So like, like mysterious series of block trades get executed. We slowly discover, oh, it's Goldman Sachs selling this on behalf of someone. Then we realize, oh, it's not just Goldman Sachs, and oh, it's it's Bill Huang, right? The Tiger, Tiger Cub. So yeah. It was just a huge number of banks rushing to liquidate positions to recover their capital after they realized, oops, uh, Huang cannot actually uh, cover his fees, right? And so, yeah, basically, let's just, I'll just quickly define what, what a block, block trade is, right? It's basically any sort of large uh, large trade that is conducted in a dark pool, right, or off market, right? So privately agreed to, and it's a transfer of the titles here, All right? And so the biggest single bank, right, uh, which is selling uh, these, which is doing these block trades was Goldman Sachs, right? And it sold more than ten billion dollars worth See, of shares. Now, now here, we're, here we come back to the, what if we forced all volume on exchange? <laughs> Just think about it. Like, what would happen if that was suddenly you get like a massive spike in volume and just sell it all on the market? Look, it would just be so fun. 
Just imagine, like imagine. Look, I, the thing is, like I, I get, like it would, it would be incredibly fun to watch, but like there is, there is a side to it. Like, what would actually happen to the market? Like all those, it would trigger so many, you know, bells, and it would stop, stop out the market so many times. And I was like, also, just hurt the inve- other investors who are not who you know. Should you blame the other investors for the mistakes of Bill Huang? Look, look, look. But Allison, right? Uh, this make like the only thing the this sort of massive volatility is hurting. Well, not, not not quite right, but the reason why we saw such massive share dips among the like positions that were being held was because like it's algos which are exacerbating this, right? Exacerbating this. It's yeah, not no, the that, fault. that's that is definitely true. Like. Uh, I think algos, like yeah, they have solid returns. It's definitely a good option, but there is a part of it where they don't know how to manage a massive block trade because there are not that many examples of stuff like that going on. It's yeah. there's a lot of parts to the market where you know a lot of algos are trained on you know higher volume, higher volatility land earnings and stuff like that. But when it comes to truly you like semi unique or unique events happening on the market, algos don't have experience there it's 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 a real issue as far as how they're developed yeah. where like how do you put in stops how will you operate that whole thing how do you limit their losses like what do you do like what would you do if you were look, developing an algo trying to work around this stuff look it's just that uh, that's not my personal expertise right but i think the point here is that if we're caring about the little guy right caring about the, like the small guys trying to invest his money putting all this sort of volume on market is not going to be a huge deal for the investor, right? If he's doing, if he's like split his portfolio properly, right, he might have a small exposure to say yeah, discovery or something. But I think we have to, like, we have to keep in mind here. Like, if you look, let's say you're trading using the order book and you're just looking out on the order book and you're trying to use that to trade. Yeah. If I see a massive spike in the, in, you know, in the volume and in short, uh, you know, and someone's selling and there's a massive block there, you're going to be like, what the hell's happening? There's no way you're going to re- react to it completely calm. You're going to be scared, especially if you're already in the market. Well, this is just, okay, well, that's sort of less on the education side of the people need to learn how to manage their uh, sort of fears, right, things like that. Uh, yeah, and I think that's part of education. Like, that, look, th- that's the issue. Like, at the end of the day, trading is about psychology. Well, you, could, you could teach a ton, we can get people used to a lot of this stuff, but there are scenarios where, you either have to risk manage very well, which I, that's one thing you can teach, or if people are not gonna, you know, risk manage much, it just comes from experience. It just comes from exposure to the market. Actually, let's just go back quickly then to talk about like how you sort of design an algorithm to sort of account for all these black swan events, right? It's I have just, no idea. <laughs> it's just like definitely not my expertise, and I just I'm stuck here with my sort of knowledge of some of the coding behind these things, right? Look, I, what I think I would just, do, I just got an idea. I would just take a person. Who's gonna sit there? And whenever a black swan ha- mm. event happens, they just mash a red button and yeah. it stops everything, closes out position, and you're done. That's the algo done for the day. Okay, that's the yep. way to deal with it. <laughs> that sounds good. We'll bring it up with the research teams later on today. Then, yeah, uh, that, sounds like a plan. A, that's a fail safe. Okay. <laughs> All right. Actually, so like, talking about this, this sort of human element, right? It's just another sort of amazing thing that just drives me crazy about this whole event, right? Is that Credit Suisse led a bunch of banks and tried to sort of negotiate with Huang as they saw like how this how his positions were going to shit. And they were trying to sort of find a nice way to let this unravel without rolling, rolling the markets. But then it was it all fell apart. The negotiations fell apart and every, it was a free fall, right? With like Deutsche Bank unloading first, right? Unloading four billion. It might have been a single share, right? And avoiding a lot of losses. And then on the other side you got Nomura losing two billion, like uh, Credit Suisse maybe losing like three or four billion, etc. And it just strikes me as so 
uncoordinated and sort of like something straight out of a game theory textbook, right? This sort of prisoner's boring. dilemma of backs. <laughs> like unironically, right? It's just crazy. It's just, like there's well, no I regular... think I think we're gonna have to talk about this a bit more in the next episode because we're kind of running short on time here. So let me just do a quick recap of everything we've covered. So we've talked about GME, where still around $190. Why is it? What's going on? And the fact that retail is still holding GME hard and that the reason why they could have some potential on the upside there. Next, we talked about the proposed regulation, everything from the imposed tax and trades and how we couldn't agree there to how limiting shorting would not be a good idea. We talked again about the shortening of settlement times, which... We don't know how we feel about it. like it's definitely a good thing but i i'm I just concerned whether it's going to pass because i would love to see it in the market next we talked about the payment for, for additional regulation around you know how do you calculate price improvement stuff like that and then forcing volume on exchange it would definitely be interesting to have more volume there but how would it work you know we would it just limit access of retail investors due to them having to pay commissions and how would that all work we don't know that would definitely up for the regulators to figure out we then talked about accredited investors and the talk about changing the requirements from being capital based to being exam based which we all think would be absolutely amazing that would bring so many interesting opportunities for retail uh, to the market so we'd love to absolutely see that and then lastly we talked about the block trades exciting time on the market i hope all of you have really enjoyed listening to this if you're listening on apple Podcasts, be sure to tune in and give that five star rating And I hope you have a lovely day. Bye.